panel on memory, uh, the media and the way that they portray uh, political events related to conflict um, plays a key role uh, in ongoing and post-conflict situations in terms of justice and the construction of the truth and memory, uh, but also uh, for those of us who do academic research, uh, and uh, both qualitative and quantitative. And for those of you who do advocacy work uh, and who, ba who base some of your um, research, who do research and use media sources, uh, this is fundamental. So I'm happy to uh, introduce a really great panel. Holman um, Morris, who is a Colombian journalist and who could not be here, I was thrilled to be able to introduce him. But I, and I'm happy to, very, I'm very happy to introduce Han Jung Kim, who's uh, a former uh, Minnesota, is a Minnesota alumnus, and now uh, a postdoctoral research fellow at Griffith University in Australia. Uh, and to my right, uh, there, um, we, we have Aimable Tuarejirwa, uh, who is a Rwandan journalist uh, with studies in journalism and communication, but also a professional actor and dancer. Um, and drummer. And drummer as well. One of our more multi-talented presenters. You can add that here. And as respondent, we have Eugenio Galliardone, who's a, a British Academy Postdoctoral Research Fellow uh, here at the University of Oxford. So uh, with that said, should we get started maybe? Um, can we start with you? Okay. Uh, sure. Uh, today, uh, I will talk about the role of the media in the process of finding the truth in the South Korean Truth Commission case. Uh, before going any further, I will briefly explain what happened in South Korea because uh, not many of you uh, are uh, either familiar with either the human rights violations or the transitional justice process in that country. Uh, the country had three distinct uh, phases of actual cities. Uh, two large-scale um, massacres and then the one systemic human rights violations. And first, um, in 1948, the local communist insurgents uh, rebelled against the U.S. occupational forces and the South Korean government. And then the counterinsurgency strategy was extremely brutal, uh, involving 30,000 uh, civilian dead. And then the second, uh, during the Korean War, which, you all, which all of you are familiar, uh, between 1950 and 1953, the massacres of civilians uh, took place by all parties involved in the war, mainly by the South Korean military and police, uh, but also by the North Korean army and also by the U.S. military. Uh, I know that you might be familiar with the Nogun Lee massacre, which has been unearthed uh, recently uh, by the uh, killing of the refugees uh, by the U.S. Uh, uh, military. The massacres during the war uh, left about around one million death, uh, civilian death. Uh, and finally, uh, there has been a consecutive uh, dictatorship and then the military and authoritarian regimes between 1948 uh, to 1987. So we had a democratization in 1987, and that left the country with a numerous cases of a suspicious death, disappearances, and then the torture victims. So uh, since democratization in 1987, the country has adopted uh, several uh, transitional justice measures, including the criminal prosecutions of two former authoritarian presidents in 1996, uh, who were sentenced to, to uh, death and then also the life imprisonment, but later uh, both were pardoned by uh, President Kim, uh, Kim Dae-jung. 
It also had a very limited uh, reparation program for the victims of the Gwangju uh, Democratic Uprising in 1980. Uh, but the most frequent form, uh, the measures used uh, in South Korea is truth commissions. So since 2000, uh, South Korea had at least a dozen uh, truth commissions or truth commission-like bodies to investigate the past uh, atrocities occurred in South Korea. The three of them uh, stands out. The first, the Jeju Commission, which uh, was created in 2000 to investigate the massacres uh, during the communist uprising in 1948 and 1949. And then the second, we had the Presidential Commission on Suspicious Death uh, also created in 2000 under President Kim Dae-jung. Uh, and finally, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission worked between 2005 and 2011, uh, which was uh, a body with the most comprehensive mandate to investigate the human rights violations uh, between the period uh, between 1910 and 1993. So almost 83 years of the human rights violations were the kind of temporal mandates for this commission. I'm glad to bring the South Korean case to the group since the experience in Asia, we had the Iranian case before, uh, has not yet been presented so far. The many important and the interesting changes are occurring in the region, and then many countries have uh, had uh, one of these uh, transitional justice measures. And in Asia, uh, some countries are well known, like Cambodia, <coughs> East Timor, uh, Indonesia, and the Philippines and Sri Lanka, but I think there are still uh, more cases like South Korea, Taiwan, and then the Solomon Islands, and then the Aceh, Indonesia, uh, which are not really well known. Uh, but I think a lot of interesting innovations and experiments and then adaptations are taking place in these regions, and that's the kind of reason I'm focusing on in terms of the transitional justice. Uh, the South Korean case tells us an interesting story about the role of the media uh, research uh, in bringing the first, the first uh, Truth Commission in South Korea in 2000 and also in assisting and leading the Commission's investigation activities. In order to understand the role of the media in South Korea, uh, you have to know the three obstacles uh, that both victims and then activists uh, faced when they, were, uh, when they embarked upon the movement in 1987. There were three big obstacles for the victims and activists. The first, the mass killing of 30,000 civilians occurred in 1948 and 1949. And the consecutive dictatorial and then the authoritarian regimes systematically suppressed the victims and silenced both victims and the public and also destroyed any hint of evidence or the, any hint of the movement to bring the uh, justice or the finding the truth for over 40 years. So very similar to the Brazilian case where there was a it had, had been a massacre and there had been an authoritarian regime that had been almost tried to erase everything uh, Every, any hint of the evidence in that country. So there was a lack of evidence and also lack of interest and there's also a full of fear in bringing this issue up in 1987. And the second uh, obstacle is that the massacre were the result of the counterinsurgency campaign against the communist uprising and then victims were doubly spaced, uh, suppressed since the communism has been, and still is, a social taboo in South Korea. So the victims have suffered a social stigma of being a communist 
or communist supporters, as in, in Guatemala and many like many cases in uh, Latin America. And finally, the hurdle was that the uprising was also not a nationwide one, but it occurred in the Jeju Island, which is, the, although it's the largest island in South Korea, but still lies at a very remote place in the southernmost part of, of, of the South Korea. So the issue was not central, but the peripheral. So the victims and activists had to overcome these three serious hurdles. The first, the lack of evidence, and second, the strong association with the communism, and then third, the localness of the issue. So the local media, especially the investigative reporting or the investigative journalism of the one local newspaper played a key role in overcoming these, all, all, all of these hurdles. So uh, it, it was different from the everyday reporting or the, of the massacre or the evidences, but it was a very deliberative uh, investigative journalism that the few uh, committee journalists has been planned for over a year, and then they have uh, reported for of over nine years. So it all started uh, immediately after the democratization when a few committee reporters decided to publish a bi-weekly reports on the civilian massacres and based on the testimonies of the victims and then eyewitnesses. The newspaper published around 500 reports over nine years. So this wasn't like a one-year project or two-year project, but it continued for over nine years. And then interesting thing is that the reporter who started this project really did not know this will be a nine-year project, but it just carried on. Uh, and then the, throughout nine years, they have interviewed at least uh, 3,000 uh, witnesses. So this team was not many. So mostly, this team was composed of five reporters, and it was usually the two reporters who were basically drafting these reports. And then they have interviewed 3,000 witnesses. So this particular report is, was extremely effective in leading the movement and also the commission activities. The first, the report uh, corrected the distorted facts of the past and established the new facts. The dysfunction was important uh, since the massacre occurred 40 years ago, and then the most key documents were systematically destroyed by the government. The authorities suppressed the knowledge of the massacre, and then the official documents and history textbooks distorted the facts, and then also they exaggerated the facts, and most often reproduced the distorted facts and over and over again. So this was a very problematic uh, since the inaccurate information was reproduced over and over again without correcting the sources. So this was what the government has done and then they want to impose the anti-communist perspective or the co uh, on this um, this massacre and then in that uh, in the course of doing, doing that, that, that information, the distorted facts, wrong facts, and the facts without any sources, that has been reproduced and then over and over again. So, um, and then the, this uh, incorrect and exaggerated fact has been continuously cited. The reporters, uh, what, what the reporters have done is they questioned the every facts out there, and then they tried to verify the facts claims and testimonials. So they found some testimonies uh, during the uh, authoritarian regime, 
which were fabricated by the intelligence services uh, during the military regimes. And then they also found out that the number of the insurgents or the weapons were uh, intentionally exaggerated in order to justify the harsh suppressions. So that's the very small fact, but they have found out those kind of facts, and then they actually did not believe any official government documents. So they have checked and they cross-checked everything. So uh, this was a, a really important starting point. And then, for example, this uh, communist uh, uprising. Uh, a lot of people, the official, official narrative of this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, uprising was that it was there was a direct uh, order from the North Korea. But what they have found out is that that very testimonies were fabricated by the intelligence service. And then that fabricated facts has been over and over again cited and then the reproduced and then uh, cons consolidated in the course of the 40 years of the anti-communist uh, co uh, anti -communist regimes. And second, the reporters interviewed uh, 30,000 victims and witnesses, and this later became a critical source uh, for the commission's investigation. The commission identified 500 victims out of the list of the 33,000, uh, and then had an intensive interview with them while drafting the report. However, the interviewing 30,000 people for these two or five uh, journalists was not easy for sure. It was especially difficult in the earlier phase of the, uh, of the report, since very few came out to testify. One of the reporters told me, uh, quote, it was difficult to find the witnesses who actually were alive and have seen the massacre. It was more difficult to find those who were willing to testify. No one was willing to testify. The people would not let us take our shoes off, you know, that in Korean culture you have to take the shoes off in order to get into the house. So people would not let us take our shoes off in front of their houses. Oftentimes the elders were ready to talk, but their spouses dissuaded them. Uh, in many cases, we had an elderly witnesses who were willing to testify, but accept their own stories. So this is the uh, this tells the how it was difficult for the victim to have start uh, have uh, witnesses. But the attitude of victims started to change as the report became irregular. So once one or the two testimonials are out there, the victims and witnesses started to think that it is okay to testify to the level of what had already been published in a newspaper. Uh, and then more and more people were willing to testify and with more details. So there was a kind of an escalating effect between the reportage and then the number of victims that were willing to testify and then the, the level of openness and then the details. So there was a uh, upward trend and escalating effect between the reportage and then the people who came out to testify to the, to, to the journalists. One interesting thing is that the female victims and witnesses who were afraid to tell, uh, 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 to, to testify in the first place became an important source of information for this journalist. Uh, one reporter observed that the, the memories, uh, the women's memories and about dates, names, and time were extremely accurate than men. And they told me it was extremely useful, uh, the women's testimonies. The reporters took an extreme caution in what they were publishing due to the surveillance and then suppression, even after the democratization. They were able to publish only 10% uh, of what they have got um, 
and then they had to cross-check every sentences uh, they published. For example, after publication of each part of the report, the police visited the village and then asked the witnesses whether the information published in the, report, uh, in the newspaper was exactly consistent with what they have testified. If any minor misinformation was identified, the police were ready to investigate the newspaper, and then the reporters, uh, uh, while the, also the intelligence agents, were also ready to incite the witnesses to sue the newspaper <coughs> with uh, uh, wrong information. But ironically, the such obstructions and interference ultimately helped to produce a more objective reliable, and then fact-based reportage. So uh, these new findings and testimonies uh, helped to reframe the victims as uh, innocent victims from the former official narratives of them as a communist guerrillas or the communist uh, supporters. Um, and they also liberated the movement to build, to create the truth commission from being an advocacy of communists. But this process was not easy. Uh, as the newspaper reports got popular, other newspapers copied what they were doing uh, with a, a certain twist. So other newspapers started to publish the testimonials of those uh, of the victims who were killed by the guerrillas or uh, the victims, uh, the police or military victims. So they were alternative. So there was official narratives of the government, and then there was an alternative narratives, and then these official narratives have been infiltrated in other newspapers, and then there were still continuous fight between the different narratives. So um, all these experience, uh, expertise of this investigative journalism has directly transferred to the commission since these two reporters who played a key role in the serial reports took the charge of the investigation unit under the truth commission. So their previous research and the previous findings and then the list of the witnesses uh, and uh, this all uh, made a truth commission's investigation activities uh, much efficient. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.